Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Ash's Birthday Spooktacular Army of Darkness episode. <laughs> well, that's quite a nice thing. I think it's it is a, a it's a symbol, isn't it? It's symbolic of the fact that we are we are more in sync than we. It's, than a, we... it's a testament to the power of friendship. Uh, it's. That's what this show is really all about. This show really is a testament to the power of friendship and communist theory. <laughs> <laughs> which which is the, the ultimate manifestation of friendship. Should we, yeah, should believe, we do this? Yes. Yes, let's uh let's talk about a horror a horror movie. That's right, everyone. We're doing something a little weird today. We're going to break from our usual tradition of talking about horror movies and talk about a horror movie. My it's, name it's... is... <laughs> <laughs> My name is Introduction, also known as Ash. I am doing the introduction for today's episode, and we are not bungling this in the slightest. I am joined, as always, by, I'm pretty sure, John, aka the Lit Guy. Hi? Hello. <laughs> well, we, weird place. We started off in a weird place in this episode. Hi, everybody. It's it's Horror Vanguard. We're back. It's another episode. Um, this is going to be a fun one, clearly. <laughs> See, we, we stumble out the gate, but we do that so we can finish all the stronger. We, we were shaking it out now, and by the time we cross the finish line, we are, like, at peak performance. Uh, that's what we always aim for. It is it is a very special episode um, because, um, as as longtime listeners may know, we have started to develop a few uh, traditions uh, on this show. One of which is in in the month of of uh, one of our birthdays, the person whose birthday is that month gets to have a special birthday episode, and uh, we are privileged and blessed in the darkness that is February to be celebrating my co-host's birthday. Uh, so this episode uh, has been chosen by Ash. But before we get into what we're talking about today, a quick word from our sponsors. This program is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you for listening and stay spooky. It's not wolves, it's wolf. 20,000 years, Muslim. 10 times your fucking Christian era. Yes, I am older. I am theoretically wiser than I was before, although that is potentially in doubt. And I have decided to revisit a film that is important to me. I... <laughs> Uh, I I am I'm very excited about this. Uh, before we get into your uh, praisey for people who have never seen the film, um, I just want to say that like one of the great things about about cinema as an art form is that it allows you to understand uh, people. Kind of share the shared experience of watching a film together actually helps you to understand not just the images on the screen but the people that you watch it with. I think in a new way. 
Um, and I think that is the case when we look at the films that we choose to celebrate our birthdays. Uh, the last one that, that we did in, a fe- in February was uh, The Black Tower, which has gone on to be one of our, uh, I, I think, one of our best episodes. So I think the birthday episodes are an awful lot of fun. Um, but for people who may not have seen Army of Darkness, what is it all about, Ash? Well, I, I think I not to start the discussion before the pricey, but I agree. You know, art and identity are co-constitutive of each other. You know, like our identity shapes the art that we gravitate towards and the art that we gravitate towards in turn uh, shapes us. And my name is Ashley. And I would be remiss in my duties as uh, a horror fan named Ashley to not select Army of Darkness. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, honestly, I, I hadn't seen it in a very long time prior to watching it for this episode. Uh, and, um, you know, there are a few there are a few films that I've said this about, um, but I genuinely do mean it that I actually think I get you better after watching them. <laughs> knowing the events and characters of this movie i don't know if that's a compliment <laughs> i uh, on, in the context of army of darkness i i i want to assure you i mean it entirely as a compliment <laughs> in in any respect it, it is a statement of objective fact and i will take it as such <laughs> uh i i i i mean it as a compliment in the context of army of darkness uh of die you zombie bastards of the black tower uh, and probably probably many, many more films that you've introduced me to. Wow, those three films really do, like, now that you rattle them off, I'm like, man, if I had to pick, like, three movies to do some kind of, like, Academy showing a really high-profile Hollywood event, I would pick these three films. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that says... I, I like what that says about you as a person and as a, <laughs> and, and as a critic of culture. But uh, let's 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 get this uh, spooky ball rolling. So so what is it about Ash? As always, we 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 still do these very very straight, very factual, pricey recap of the film. What is Evil Dead: Army of Darkness all about? Today, I turn thirty three years of age. I never want to become someone who bemoans the passing years and engages in trite, back-in-my-day commentary on the passing of time. But it is true that, although I am far from old, I may have begun to feel the weight of my years. As is true of all living things, each breath I draw pulls me inexorably closer to the grave. Each sunrise, each kiss, each warm exchange with a friend— bears within itself the echo of the coffin that will one day bear me into the earth. It's on this 33rd birthday that I reflect upon what it means to die. This question is almost always rushed. Death is a great finality. It is abrupt, or so we would be led to believe. When thinking about my eventual demise, I find myself thinking about the lives of everyone around me. Army of Darkness was made in 1992, I was four when this movie came out. No one involved in the production or distribution of this movie had any knowledge of my existence, and yet it has become a deep part of my life. No doubt some of those people have died, but a small part of their life lives on in not just my celebration of this artwork, but in the ways in which it touches countless lives. We die each and every day. Little pieces of our lives fall to the wayside as relationships end and friendships shift. But this is only a false death. 
Our lives, our actions, live on in the people we touch. Each day we choose to commit to a course of action that will have direct consequences on the lives and people around us. People we may not even see. To fear death is to fear a life insufficiently lived. Let us then live fully and write our epitaphs in smiles worn and justice won. Even in the small miracles of art, like Army of Darkness, we attain an immortality greater than myth. Join us as we discuss Army of Darkness. Um, <laughs> I I don't know I don't know whether whether I should say this, but there are uh, you know little glimpses behind behind the, the 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 curtain of podcast making. This is a re-record. Um, <laughs> yes, this is yes. a re-record uh, of this episode. We we had some minor technical, some gremlins in the technical crypt, um, uh, and you've re- written an entirely new pricey for this episode. That is true, um, and I love both of them so much. <laughs> <laughs> but I I just I just genuinely wasn't expecting you to have put in. This is okay. So this is one of the amazing things about Ash that he uh, always puts in just that little bit of extra effort that maybe you weren't expecting or thinking would be necessary. But he's he's the kind of person who will write a brand new pricey when you have to re-record a podcast episode just because he thinks he needs to. Um, <laughs> I I love that. That was so good. Um, where where would you like to begin as we enter the discourse zone? My my true home away from home, the realm of cinema discourse. Um, well, I I think I think we should do what we what we often like to do on the show, and that's let's start with with the technical commentary. Uh, before before we move into uh, I don't want to necessarily say deeper discussion, but move into more unnecessarily convoluted references to Mark Fisher, Adorno, and Foucault. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there's there's a couple behind the scenes production things for this movie that I think really help ground it, um, and that's that uh, the Evil Dead at the time of the making of this movie the rights for Evil Dead were kind of in, in, appropriately enough in limbo, yeah, uh, which is why the beginning of this movie has effectively a reshoot of some of the original Evil Dead footage and plot stuff. Um, this movie also has like a comically large number of revealing mistakes you know, uh, right yes. off <laughs> yes right off the bat when ash falls through the temporal vortex and lands in arthurian england which is what happened to me when i moved to england so uh, <laughs> i found that to be kind of faded um, yeah, yeah. but he lands on like just just clearly like mats like gym mats <laughs> that they put down to make sure that the stunt would be safe and it's like it's like they didn't even like they didn't even hide them. They didn't even put sand on them. They're just like the color of ground and just sitting there. And it's the goofiest thing I have ever seen. Yeah. But I think th- this movie is a real testament to like how little that stuff truly matters. If the overall uh, uh, art of your movie, if the core of it is good, how much an audience can really just weather bad mistakes if the core of your craft is a cinematographer and a script writer and and actors are all really strong like all of the craft in this movie is really really strong and so all of these like goofy little mistakes that are just everywhere in this movie 
don't really matter don't really yeah. affect the reading too much I don't, I don't know if anyone like if that would have happened in the justice league movie you know if if ben affleck would have fallen on very clearly a gym mat that they didn't like cgi away or something that would have been like there would have been whole cinema sense videos on that oh yeah absolutely absolutely um and yeah you're right but like we talked about this a little bit in the evil dead review which is like one of the kind of really fun just like enjoyable things about it is that it's a film that's just clearly made by just friends hanging out and and making films because they love making films together Mm -hmm. and sam raimi loves making movies you can just tell uh and this is maybe not the 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 capstone to the trilogy that like hardcore fans were expecting but i think it takes it in really interesting directions and it shows that you know in between making evil dead and then returning to close things out with army of darkness they've kind of learned interesting things as well about kind of like the technical side Mm -hmm. because it's much more ambitious in terms of its scale Mm, i agree i agree i think that bruce campbell and the ramies and um do 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 rob tappert uh have an interesting approach to fan service and nostalgia um and you can see this in like the evil dead tv show as well you know like there there's certainly a, a good amount of nostalgic fan service in that yeah but it feels like they're also trying to take the show and in, in, or take take the concept take this take this franchise in new and exciting directions that aren't just like, oh, do you remember that thing? Like, I, I think about like the Disney Star Wars movies and it's like, oh, today we're going to find out where Han Solo got that red stripe on his pants. And it's just the most boring and trite garbage possible. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, does that improve things for you? You know, does that was anybody was it was anybody kind of watching the film going, I demand the prequel. So to find out why is his last name <laughs> solo oh is Ooh. it because he's got no oh my God. so boring it's the it's the most boring way of approaching narrative mm-hmm. yeah it's it's just you know not, not to make this about the evil dead tv show but like they, they give ash a weird and complicated relationship with his estranged father and his his place in his awkward little hometown like they they really like build around that character and fill in a lot of interesting gaps and it's not just all like we're gonna find out where he got that iconic blue shirt it's, <laughs> it's, it's more useful narrative you know which I, I think plays into their strengths maybe maybe we can kind of like talk a little bit about ash then as a character oh i um, love talking about ash hey let's do uh, uh handsome uh wise wise beyond his years i've heard some say um knows how to uh handle a weapon (laughs) (laughs) i did used to teach archery in a past life so (laughs) we have we have we have some cursory similarities here um no no uh, all jokes aside yeah i think that's a good place to start um because what's interesting to me is wow there has been some shifts in the character right so like in evil dead Ash is basically just like a a dork who doesn't really do a great deal. Um yes. and until the very end. But there's the kind of slight it's not a danger, but it's on the edge of like what's fun about this film is is it's very self-aware. 
it's very self-aware of the kind of like creaky effects and you know the sets that you could kind of poke holes in Mm -hmm. Uh, and so in this film he is in full-on action movie hero uh kind of stereotype almost and i don't know what do you think about that shift from ash and evil dad to ash in army of darkness I, I think I think it's a really interesting shift for a character to go through, right? Like it, it lines up with like a lot of what Bruce Campbell was doing at the time as an actor and what he what he would go on to do, right? Like this this role I think really solidifies his career. In, in addition to like other other things that in terms of what he goes on to do, like My Name Is Bruce and Briscoe County Junior and stuff, like yeah, this this is the piece where we see his trajectory as an artist moving you know uh in terms of the character and the narrative i i think it's like so ash is supposed to be like early early 20s college boy in the events of evil dead one and two yeah um because evil dead one and two happen right after each other yeah um and then although he visually is significantly older um, army of darkness also happens right after those events um, so there's a little discontinuity <laughs> in the jump, but I, th- I think the the growth to like this this kind of like uh, I don't I don't want to say antihero uh, because because when I say antihero, I think like Batman and Punisher and these guys who are like pretty much villains, yeah. But we're stuck with them as heroes. But if Ash is an antihero, I think he's a proper antihero. He's a hero who's like. Got got these Don Quixote esque flaws that that rule his otherwise heroic nature. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. I would agree. Um, yeah, you 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 would you would say you would say that uh, Don Quixote and Army of Darkness are essentially on the same level in terms of their importance to the canon. Uh, I I mean, if, <laughs> if if we're gonna if we're gonna have to start putting things into hierarchies. Uh, pretty much given given the time travel element, uh, and the fa- oh, the fact he interferes with history here, you know, maybe Ash is more important than Don Quixote. <laughs> I mean, they both have windmills, which I think is the core of my argument. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I think one of the important things for me about reading Ash's character in Army of Darkness is like, keep, you know, keeping in mind that the first the first Ash in Evil Dead was kind of like a scared little dork who yeah. cowered all the time and like not not cowered out of some kind of like inner moral failing but cowered out of the fact that like you're presented with truly terrifying unknowable circumstances what are you going to do you know his his reactions are totally appropriate um and then as but as we move through these spaces right as people start accusing him of being a serial killer as like he's the only person who knows what's actually going on and everyone around him just doesn't get it his his evolution into this kind of like a smarmy jaded anti-hero type is it's just it's a it's very organic right it works yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um you 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 actually kind of talked about this you've talked about this tangentially um in previous episodes but maybe you can say a bit more about it here which is this notion of this kind of swords and sandals uh fantasy is actually connected to weird fiction because essentially this is what this is this is sort of like 
this is this is a horror movie crossed with a Conan the Barbarian film. Uh, oh yeah. But you you've kind of told me a little bit about this previously about how, the ways in which that kind of Conan esque fant- high fantasy is actually deeply tied up in the history of weird fiction. Yeah, and I think that Army of Darkness is closer to Conan the Barbarian than a lot of like contemporary imaginations of Conan the Barbarian. Mm. Um, and, and this is because Sir Robert E. Howard, a.k.a. Two-Gun Bob, the guy who wrote Conan the Barbarian, um, was a good friend of H.P. Lovecraft. And we won't get into H.P. Lovecraft here because that's saved for a future episode where I just go full on meltdown Godzilla mode and lose my mind. Um, <laughs> But suffice it to say that uh, Robert E. Howard loved weird fiction. He liked those spooky, high-minded, complicated ideas that kind of come with weird fiction. But he also liked paying his rent and making uh, money. Yeah. Um, and not in a horrible capitalistic way, but like in a sense that like I like making money because that's where the food comes from. <laughs> <laughs> And so, like a, a lot of a lot of, uh, and and they corresponded with each other greatly, right? There, are, I think two. It's a two volume set of all of their letters of correspondence between Howard uh, Lovecraft and uh, Robert E. Howard, Howard Phillips mm. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard. Okay, I'm getting like, I'm fusing them together in my mind into a single monstrosity. Um, but no, like a lot of a lot of those Conan stories, if you go back and you reread them, you can see the marks of Lovecraft all over it. You know, in in the kind of cosmic gods that Conan is always going up against and the way the monsters move and behave, they're very, they've got that Lovecraft vibe. Um, And so these these two modes of fiction aren't as far apart as I think a lot of modern interpretations would have them be. And Evil Dead, or specifically Army of Darkness, has a weird way of like reinscribing the weird into this kind of sword and sorcery style fiction you know, you you have it's it's like it's almost like an old school slipstream piece because you've got this uh, you've got these sci-fi elements, right? Where where it's it's a it's a Yankee in King Arthur's court, yeah. And then you've got this weird fiction stuff where it's this quest for this unknowable Necronomicon book written by ancient demons, and then you've got the uh, sword and sorcery bits where we have now our Conan the Barbarian style hero uh, going on a quest. Okay, so you see, you see, this is why you are better than pretty much every major movie critic who reviewed this film, because <laughs> so so much of the negative criticism of this film was like, oh, I don't get it. It's not really a horror movie anymore. What what? It, why is it taking this weird left turn into like Arthurian fantasy? Uh, but what you've just done very compellingly, in my opinion, is connect these two forms. That appear to be so disparate, really clearly, um, it is about the, the the making history weird, uh, making it making it uh, strange and and uh, defamiliarizing us to it. Um, so yeah, basically, I'm saying uh, yes, this is good. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like we we can even tie the comedy elements into this too because this is this is I think if I were to put this in a generic category I would do horror comedy. Yeah. Um but but even the comedy elements tie right back into this this history and this tradition, right? Like uh again not to dig too deep into this yet, he said with great reluctance, um I'm resisting the temptation. I'm holding back the the mental shuggaths that want to break free. Um but like Lovecraft liked making jokes even though they were pretty much jokes he wrote for himself. 
um, like in From Beyond, the whole thing with the pineal gland is he's making a joke uh, because he yeah, knows yeah. full well that the pineal gland doesn't do that. Um, so he's trying to make a joke. And characters like Clark Ash Tan is a direct reference to uh, the poet laureate of California, Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah. Um, and, and in this movie, we have the same thing, right? Like the, the Raimi's Bruce Campbell, Tapper, they're, they're very much creating jokes you know um less esoteric <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like yeah. there's tons of references to like three stooges and stuff like that in here right that a lot of people will be able to get and find funny yeah absolutely there's like the big influence is clearly the three stooges there's a lot of like classic physical comedy oh the whole um, escaping the graveyard scene is just like an extended three stooges bit oh <laughs> it's so good do you want to talk about set and setting for a moment? Yes. <laughs> I know. Ooh, I know. So um, for all of my fellow Americans out there who haven't had the privilege to travel to the Queen's England, um, this movie is a 100% accurate depiction of what it's like. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. It's one big Californian desert that has a single castle in it and one windmill. Uh, that's what it's like over there. This movie's true. Uh, what are your thoughts? uh yes um i can can confirm um also uh this 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 uh film makes uh britain look far cooler than it ever has been in, at any point in history um well king king arthur's got a really contemporary haircut he's got like a, a really edgy <laughs> mullet look that's like that's really hot and coming back right now so i think you're right uh yeah this is this is kind of Again, a really classic point is that the, the 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 Gothic historically has been a fantasy about history, right? Yeah. Uh, horror has always been concerned with like going back into history and turning it into something other. So this idea of like, oh, he gets sent back in time and runs into King Arthur is, uh, again, it's it might initially strike people as silly, but it's actually very in keeping. This is a very traditional like horror comedy movie in lots of ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of, one of the interesting things for me is that like so many places in the world just kind of look like forests and deserts in the greater Los Angeles area <laughs> because that's where movies come from. Yeah. And so you've, you know, it, it would have cost prohibitively uh, large amounts of money to film this movie in a castle in England you know, that probably would have cost them way more than to just film this on some castle sets that were already built for some other production. Yeah. Um, and the desert, that's just a short drive out of town. And I think a weird, this has a weird fact of uh, effect of like changing psychogeography a little bit. Um, because, because while I, while I was living in England, um, none of, none of it felt like the England that I had been exposed to from cinema because that's yes. either that's either Dickensian or it's just Hollywood. And when I say Hollywood, I mean literally Los Angeles. Um, yeah. Because that's where people are filming and that's the sets that are available. And it's like unless you're in like like um the old timey market in York is a great example. That feels like a Hollywood set because it's intentionally been preserved historically to retain that image, you know? That yeah, history. So so this does not happen in in England. It happens in a place that you think England looks like. 
Mm-hmm. Which which is fine because again, that's how you make movies on uh, literally no money. And this film went over budget anyway, even though it didn't have a massive budget to work with. Uh, yeah, they, they they ran out they ran out of money trying to make this. Um, yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't happen in England. It happens in a place that you think England is supposed to look like, which again is is just the way that movies are made. It's fine, but it does mean that like. You watch this and you go, uh, as as a as as a an English person, which for my <laughs> sins, for my sins, I am. You watch this and go, I have some questions, but you also go, it's kind of it. It's recognizably Englandy. It's sort of Englandish, so that's fine. So mm-hmm. you kind of you kind of kind of go with it. And I think that the. Um, the the slightly befuddled looking crowd pieces and the 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 rubber swords they all add up to this kind of impression of it being being historical ish it's gesturing towards the history towards historical but it would never have enough money to make it look realistic so why bother yeah it's not braveheart <laughs> you know you get the advantage of using um of using the kind of semiotic shorthand of film to create the impression that you want. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in, in this movie, I think it's perfectly serviceable, right? Because this movie isn't about historical England. This movie is about skeletons and a guy with a chainsaw for a hand. It's moving in a different direction. <laughs> um, but I think it, it is, it is something worth keeping in mind for cinema more broadly, a really kind of like what I would almost push to call vile example of this is if you're watching a movie that's set in Appalachia, uh, you, you know, like 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 uh, you know, rolling, you know, these these misty mountains that are older than time itself, this this rich history, these deep forests. It's filmed in Canada uh, because here in the United States we have destroyed so much of that mountain range, so much of the communities that were there. Not to mention uh, the indigenous peoples whose land that is. And so it's to the point where, like, okay, if Hollywood wants to shoot a movie that feels like it's in that area, they have to go to Canada to do it. Yeah. But yeah. as as a contemporary audience, right, we buy in. You know, we we see we see the little burn in at the bottom of the screen that says like Appalachia, nineteen seventy. You know, and then we don't we don't think that like oh they're shooting this in Canada because strip mining destroyed the town that this would actually be being filmed in. So not a yeah. problem for Army of Darkness because one, it's not what the movie's about, and two, it's the British. <laughs> well, yeah, true. But this brings us back to the bigger point, right, which is that realism is never realistic. And actually yes. actually, this kind of stuff, which shows as a, a broad, it has a kind of semiotic shorthand, a series of signs that you can assemble. And it's it's done well enough that you uh, you probably will just go, yeah, let's let's go with it. Let's enjoy it. Now, you, whilst you were speaking, made the point that this film is uh, about something very important. And I think we should talk about uh, skeletons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, let's let's do it. Um, before before we okay. have a serious discussion, which which of the skeleton soldiers was your favorite, if if any? Because I have two. Uh, my favorite is I have two favorites as well. My favorite is the angry dooting skeleton. Classic, modern uh, classic, I should say. Ah, uh, uh, just to, to 
to be an angry dooting skeleton marching along with your skeleton friends. Head empty, um, no thoughts, all dooting. Yeah, yeah, head empty, no thoughts, just dudes, just angry <laughs> dudes. Um, that's that's my first favorite. My second favorite is the skeleton that says to the other as they're pulling him out of the grave, "Welcome back to the land of the living. Now get to work." <laughs> <laughs> Absolute classic. Who, who are your favorite angry skeletons? Um, I uh, likewise I have a musical choice, and that's bagpipe skeleton. Yes. <laughs> um, because they they go out of their way to signify that not only can bagpipe skeleton play those bagpipes, but it's also like covered in like what I'll just call Scottish iconography. <laughs> like they wanted us to really understand that it's not just a, ba- a skeleton that can play a bagpipe; it's a Scottish skeleton that can play a bagpipe. It's the Scottish. It's it's the. It isn't someone who's like, oh my my great grandfather's uncle was Scottish. Therefore, that's why I get to wear tartan. No, this is <laughs> this is a proud Highlander who has been brought down for the Which, battle. I, I think I think it's a subtle nod to the Henry the Red stuff. Um, but we'll we'll get it. Oh, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll get to that. And the other other favorite skeleton of mine is that when when the uh, army of the dead are being defeated, we have one skeleton who runs, stops, looks in the camera and says, let's get the hell out of here. And that joke (laughs) makes me fall over laughing every single time I watch this movie. I... I I love the skeleton army. Um, I love how they're brought back to the land of the living. Um... Uh, through the bumbling incompetence of our uh, protagonist um I, I love that they all love music and have these uh certain skills um but i also firmly believe that the angry skeletons need to be unionized <laughs> this is true um because what's really interesting right is that they're they're they're, they're brought back um uh, to the land of the living, but they are immediately subsumed into uh, capitalist hierarchies of domination. You know the mm-hmm. the joke of "Welcome back to the land of the living." Now get back to work. Is is now pick up a shovel and get digging because your job is to dig up more skeletons so they can keep digging so we can grow the army. It's like you don't even get you don't even get like uh, you know uh, uh, if you're dead at the very least you should have a union like. <laughs> <laughs> What do you what do you think about the the skeleton army? I mean, I, I think that the, that take is totally correct, and it's interesting that you know, like, welcome back to the land of the living. I start digging is so painfully true. You know, like that line is almost shatteringly tragic. That this is what the world of the living is defined by. You know, just just get back to work. You're here again. I did as, as part of my my birthday. I like to watch just a just endless stream of horrible movies. Um, including uh, catching up on all the Ron Ford movies that I hadn't seen the whole way through yet, including V World Matrix and Hollywood Mortuary. Mm-hmm. Um, Hollywood Mortuary is about a failed, uh, well, not I shouldn't say failed. It's about a Hollywood special effects artist who loses his job because Hollywood stops making horror movies. You know, and, and set it's set in the golden age of the Universal monsters, right? Through a series of hijinks and wacky events, he winds up becoming like a practitioner of some unspecified arcane art that brings bodies back from the dead. Yeah. Um, and he resurrects famous horror actors. And one thing that they all talk about is they all talk about disturbing their rest, wanting to go back to rest. 
and I think there's this there's this rich tradition in, in zombie. And when I say zombie, I don't mean Romero's ghouls. I mean the old zombie, the the original zombie, where it's it's about labor. It's about life and death and work. And and the zombies in Army of Darkness, which are just skeletons, you know, they have that same vibe where it's just like this is what resurrection's about. It's about being forced back to work. Yeah. And this this is the this is the thing which we can read in a couple of ways, which is like it, it's either about the total proliferation of capitalist realism to exist, to live, is to work, um, or we can we can talk about it in terms of sort of uh, hierarchies of of domination, of relations of power. Uh, those aren't contradictory, of course, but also it's there is something so tragic about it, right? And the the this idea of like, uh, you know, even in 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 eternal rest. You were never. You were always a productive force. You could always be harnessed. You could always be told to get back to work. Um, I, I, I am very sympathetic towards the evil skeletons, towards the to, towards the angry dooting comrades. I, I kind of feel bad for them. I feel I've always felt that they've been kind of duped by evil Ash. You know, oh, because yeah, yeah, yeah. What what this movie kind of winds up being is it's a it's a conflict between two competing political parties or political systems, if you will, you know, and both are kind of, you know, strong armed into working for these like, you know, literal monarchs. Yep. Right. Like neither of these systems are egalitarian. Neither of these systems uh, have any kind of equitable practice to be discussed. And like one one weird thing that was like creeping around the back of my head while I was watching at this time is like what would happen if instead of doing like a goofy skeleton war the deadites would have been like hey living people uh we have this competing political system wherein you're dead and a kind of zombie demon monster um you do have to die to join us but once you you're dead you live forever as a zombie demon monster you know, yeah. and we have these benefits, we have these perks, you get to do this stuff. Like, what happens if instead of resolving their conflict by way of, like, sword and sorcery, it was resolved by way of, like, undead international? <laughs> there should be a genuine uh, solidarity with the dead that goes across all uh, of the... I mean, because if you know their concerns are not the same as the living, right? Their concerns are not mm-hmm. even the same as Evil Ash. Evil Ash tells them, "You've got to go and get my book." Yeah. What do the dead get out of it? They have nothing. They have nothing to protect their interests. And on the other side of it, you have Ash, who is a, who is governing because he's the one with the gun. Um, I mean, should we talk about Evil Ash? I, I feel like we should talk about Evil Ash and 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 how Evil Ash is birthed. Into the world, as it were. <laughs> yes. So, so what do you want? What do you want to talk about for for the uh, you know a- uh, advent of evil Ash? <laughs> well, I I am a sort of reluctant psychoanalyst in lots of ways. Um, but should we talk about the 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 symbolism of Ash literally breaking apart under <laughs> stress, uh, a, a, a piece of himself fracturing off? Uh, embodying all of his kind of worst libidinal and aesthetic impulses. Um, oh, what do you think about that scene? How do you how do you how do you kind of like read it? So the thing that I find to be really interesting about this is that like to 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 get psychoanalytic about this is that 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 should be Ash's shadow, 
right? That that should be everything about himself that he doesn't like, right? His his vainglorious impulses, his smarmy attitude, uh, his womanizing. It, it should be all of these things that split off and become what is wicked, right? And like from a from a filmmaking standpoint, having your character split into good and bad. It, it, this should have been like a turning point. This should have happened after he gets the book, right? Because then, oh, he makes this grave error of not reciting the words because he's selfish and a jerk. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, and then and then now, as as part of his transformation into a better person, his his wickedness is literally cleft from him. But that's not what this movie does. He he splits in, in, into good and bad ash, and then they have a fight in the middle of the forest, and bad ash fights dirty. You know, he's he's distracting Ash, he's tricking him, you know, he's making fun of him. He's just kind of being a, a bully, I guess. A bully in the classic high school TV show sense, right? He's he's just a bully. But then like Ash Ash has this 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 amazing line, one of like the most impactful lines from this movie. Good, bad, I'm the guy with the gun. Ash in that line is kind of rejecting either rejecting or transcending these these psychological frameworks. Perhaps at some point uh, uh, in the course of events, Ash has mastered Jungian shadow work and has fully absorbed all of his negative qualities and become at peace with them, making it impossible to split him <laughs> into lesser selves. But I always find it interesting that like, after having this conflict with his own externalized wickedness, he doesn't really change. You know, he kind of just stays himself through the whole, the, through the whole movie. Well, you know what? This is actually a sign of of kind of psychological maturity, you know, because any psychoanalyst is it would say, well, the point is not to expel your mm-hmm. desires, you know, it's the the your your the point is not to suppress the it. The point is to be so integrated that you are aware of and can manage and organize these uh impulsive parts of yourself. So he doesn't really change because really it isn't a moral splitting, is it? It's not a kind no. of like he doesn't become a kind of paladin of virtue when when evil Ash breaks off. He's the same guy. It's just it's a it's literally a, a, a kind of reification of aspects of his personality that are already there. So it isn't that they're expelled and then then destroyed. It's that they're externalized and recognized, but they are still there. So uh, it, it obviously. Uh, the Raimis have a very sophisticated understanding of psychoanalytic subjectivity because uh, <laughs> Ash, Ash doesn't doesn't necessarily need to go through some kind of seismic change, right? I think I think you're completely correct. You know, and I, I think this this raises a lot of really complicated questions about what Ash's character kind of says in this moment if we're taking it from a psychoanalytic perspective. You know, and I think it, those are meritous of their own conversation and their own discussion. Yeah. But I've, I've always found it really interesting that like evil Ash, right? Like evil, wicked, despised splits from him and Ash doesn't change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he is the same person after having that experience happen to him. And that is just incredibly interesting. Do you want to talk about Ash and his gun? Yes. We need to talk about the boomstick. <laughs> we, need, we need to talk about how this movie handles weapons and the, the iconography of violence. 
especially in the context of of an American hero. So here, here's a question. Does Ash bring democracy to England <laughs> in the classic American <laughs> sense of bringing democracy to the world? Um, in the in the mission accomplished George W. Bush yes. sense of the word, yes. Yes, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> Is it is it genuine uh, democracy that moves uh, Arthurian England out of the swamp of feudalistic modes of production? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think I think it's worth worth picking apart, right? So, the boomstick is is a prop that's made uh, modeled after a Stoger coach gun. Yep. Um, which is the kind of firearm in reality that that gun would be. And I think I think it's it's really interesting to me that they didn't give Ash handguns or yeah. uh, kind of like some, some, like an assault rifle, you know, like a heavily militarized weapon. Yeah. You know, like like the the weapon. Is, so it's it's the shotgun that they find in the cabin, you know, in, in the Evil Dead movies. It's it's a it's a. You know, a, a home defense slash like, you know, animal management tool for farmers, I guess. <laughs> It, it doesn't have the same visuals as uh, assault rifles and pistols do, right? Those are more militarized weapons. Yeah. I, but at the same time, it shows that really, even with that, even with that kind of like coding of what gun, which guns are, are useful for what kind of purpose, it's still, it's still weaponry, you know? It's mm-hmm. still... Political power still grows out of the barrel of a gun. Uh, <laughs> if if we might quote the uh, massive horror movie fan uh, Mao Zedong. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really bold of uh, you know Sam Raimi and Ash to choose to quote Mao Zedong when Ash defeats Evil Dash. Uh, that was that was a bold choice that I did not expect. Uh, again, as uh, as Mao also said, it, in order to get rid of the gun, it is necessary to take up the gun, um, uh, as it can only be abolished dialectically. The conditions of uh, violence can only be overcome through violent revolution. Um, but before this turns into into uh, an exposition of the works of uh, of Mao, um, yeah, yeah, like I, I I understand the point that like it's it's not a rifle, it's not uh, an assault weapon, it's it's a shotgun, but because you're in that particular historical context, it may as well be something which is, you know, it's basically the most powerful weapon in the entire country. <laughs> <laughs> and they they get they get their money's worth out of that, don't they? <laughs> but it's also it's also tied up with um it's also tied up with very american ideas about kind of americanism right because what does he Mm -hmm. say he shows off the gun and then he says shop smart shop (laughs) smart because that's where he got the gun from so it's not only is it tied up in a kind of political power it's tied up within uh, a capitalist power and that that i think is really interesting right because like ash is even at the ending right like he has gone through this like mind bending journey. He has traveled through time, changed the course of history, uh, fought demons, been in touch with the arcane, you know, like, and he chooses to go back to his day job as a clerk at a convenience store. Yeah. You know, like 
in this in the same way that the skeletons were like, yeah, welcome to the world of the living. Now start digging. Ash can also only relate to his life through work. And there's something there's something really tragic about that, that you go through these experiences that should fundamentally change the core of your being. And all he can do is go back to his day job. Yeah, he's got to go back to the gig in the S-Mart. As it, like, it is easier to imagine a historical fight with King Arthur against the <laughs> armies of the dead than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> there is actually something really important here about the, the kind of intrinsic ambiguity of horror uh, kind of icons or characters. Because mm-hmm. this is what Ash has become now, right? The, yeah. the, the, the shirt, the chainsaw, the boomstick, the car. Like, it's, it's now, he's now a kind of type. He's now a sort of icon. But icons are inherently ambiguous. You know, we can use them for... Uh, kind of progressive ends and there's a lot to kind of enjoy about it but also at the end it's still stuck within this framework of american kind of a, a late late 80s uh capitalism right the pinnacle you know our, our triumphant crescendo is getting to go back to our job as a walmart greeter because what could be better than living in the america of the present day you know and i think there is something there is a kind of like looking back at it and like trying to see all of this kind of potential in it the ending i don't know i'm not i'm not wild about the ending i mean i love i love the ending in terms of it's fun <laughs> i like it yeah to- totally totally the ending is funny and it is kind of self-aware yes. but there is there is a degree of kind of like there's a tragedy yeah. to it you know yeah. he straight up says uh they wanted me to be king you know, and like, so the, I I know what they're what they're working towards, right? Because because after he defeats the deadite in in the Mega Mart, uh, you know, like he he kisses the girl and says, "In my own way, I am king." You know, and there's this there's something uplifting about that because Ash as a hero is just a dunce, right? He's he's an everyman in the literal sense. He's not particularly clever or strong or virtuous. You know, he's he's in effect the masculine Bella Swan. Um, <laughs> oh my god oh my oh my god people are gonna be mad at you for that <laughs> oh uh, yeah well you know hail to the king baby i i make these takes uh, crafted on the lathe of heaven it's not my fault i was born this way but like he, he he's he's open like that right there's this there's this directness and this freedom of his character you know it's it's I don't I don't relate to when I see Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie, I don't relate to him at all. Yeah. You, you know, because he is like a literal uh, supermodel type. Right. You know, he is he's in this other plane. And same with like, you know, when I see Bruce Willis in like Die Hard, you know, Bruce Willis is nearly invincible and a brilliant tactician and weapons guy. And I'm like, it's not a tense movie for me. You know, I expect the people who are that have those skills to succeed in those situations you know, Kindergarten Cop is more tense than Predator, right? Because yeah. Predator, it's a it's a super soldier versus an alien super soldier. You know, it's it's not a level playing field because of their weapons. It would be a level playing field without them. Kindergarten Cop, there's tension there. I don't I don't expect I don't expect those characters to succeed in those situations. <laughs> but yeah. to tie this back to the ending of this movie, you know. 
where where does this kind of leave us as as people who are doing like a left political critique of horror cinema you know because in in one hand there's this there's this deadening weight of capitalist realism but i think like it's it, it's on us to find ways to lift that yeah. And it's hard in the end of Army of Darkness because the end of Army of Darkness just kind of reinscribes all of these boundaries. And this is the this is the challenge, right? Because you, I, I actually agree with you, and maybe I was being a bit harsh. That the ending is funny. The ending is funny, but it's like the 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 kind of horrible joke is, you know, what could be better than living? And everyone goes, yeah, that's right. It's terrible. But it's like you know, you give up that you get, you know, you give up the the the, the chance to actually. Uh, I you told me you told me before we watched this that there was a different ending. Maybe you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so um, there, there's another ending of this movie where Ash drinks too much of the potion that sends him back to his time, and he wakes yeah. up in a post-apocalyptic future. <laughs> And right. I, I think like that ending is interesting for me because I, I really d- dislike that ending in terms of how the movie flows. Yeah. You know, and, and infamously what happened is the studio saw that ending and they were like, no, we got to have a more upbeat ending, you know? And then, then, then they wrote the uh, canonical ending to the film, which I think is far superior, you know, than that, than, than one quick gag about Ash being kind of a knucklehead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. I think I think in that in in the, uh, the I'll call it the false ending. I'll, I'll take a stance <laughs> in the false ending. I I think I think there 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 are some instructive lessons, right? Because he he's not he's not principled in his use of the time travel juice, and and he wakes up after everything's been destroyed. And I think there's there's some good metaphor there about like being engaged before that happens, right? And like taking opportunities as they come to you rather than trying to work your way back towards an idealized situation. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And I I honestly I you know, maybe as I say, maybe I was being a little too harsh on the the ending. Um No, I, th- I think your the... your points your points are all right though. I think if you if you were being harsh it's cuz it was deserved. Yeah, and it's like yes, there's a joke, but it's a joke. You see like there's a difference i think between the joke that is like consoling where the audience go there's a laugh of recognition because mm-hmm. it's like i too have the kind of crappy job and then there's the joke where it's like actually you know there's an other way that things could be i think a, a good example there is like um chris morris's full lions mm-hmm. um it like that's that's a really dark very funny film but it exposes a lot of the kind of inbuilt hypocrisies and it never does this thing of like, oh, look, just like me at the end. I, I too am trying to make the best of a bad situation. Um, and in a way, I kind of, at the ending, I was kind of like, I sort of felt like Ash was now trapped. Yeah. You know, he's tra- and he's not just trapped at the ending of the film. He's trapped as like the hero type now. He's become, he's become the icon. And I was sort of like, oh, never going to be the like dork kid in the first one who is who runs around and falls over in the woods so uh you know i think this is this is an interesting place to wind up ending this episode on um uh but to uh invoke invoke the spirit of uh kyle at labor kyle on twitter uh you should definitely follow him if you're not already um and listen to their wonderful podcast all gamers are bastards um free plug (laughs) 
<laughs> right there. <laughs> um, but um, something that Kyle uh, and I have been talking about a lot recently is the um, Foucault quote, the, the soul is the prison of the body. Yeah. And in, in a way, Ash becomes his own jail at the end of this movie. He's free to return to his time, but he is now forever imprisoned as just like you're saying in this role of like this smarmy self-assured anti-hero and we see this in the evil dead tv show yeah. you know he's yeah, yeah. he is forbidden from growing beyond his experiences and he must always be this thing because anything else now becomes a disappointment you know if we were to reboot like um fede alvarez's evil dead reboot is a great example of this you, you know like that's 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 an attempt to envision evil dead without ash's presence yeah yeah and and that one encounters all of its own uh pratfalls and landmines and even even like that one had that one um so there was there was an ending that never happened where um it was going to have bruce campbell or an unseen truck driver was going to pick up our surviving hero at the end on the side of the road and her eyes would have turned deadite you know would they would have gotten that yellow cast over them and we yeah, would have yeah, seen, yeah. seen the truck driver's mouth go groovy and we would have, as the audience, been in on the joke. Um, yeah. But I think even even that, that's too much freedom for Ash, that he, had, that he had gone on to this other life as a truck driver and, like, somehow escaped this orbit. Yeah, he's, he's always going to be at the S-Mart. He's always going to be talking about his gun. He's always going to be, like, blasting a deadite between the eyes and then, like, kissing the nearest babe. Like, that's, that's always what he's going to be. Um, and it's fine. It's funny. It's enjoyable. Like I, I, I know. I, I know. I've, I've sort of been like <laughs> the, the, the one picking at this one, picking away at this film. But I actually really did enjoy it. But I'm sort of like, there was something kind of really uh, exciting at the core of it. And I think it kind of expresses the problem, right? That things become uh, drawn into the, uh, the, 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 the canon. They become acceptable they become sort of like familiar and they become uh you know made slightly more banal through their own success um mm -hmm. which we see happening time and time again right i mean uh you know this this uh, left-wing politicians are often uh fall victim to this you know when they're running and they're they're dangerous they're kind of ostracized and scapegoated and seen as kind of dangerously radical or when they retire and die suddenly they become sort of saints of virtue so it's sort of like there is this there is this kind of tension there of of the 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 banalification of ash which is maybe inevitable but there and you know it's not a not in and of itself a bad thing but there is a degree to which he's a little bit tragic at the end and i think like this hearing the banalification of ash out loud causes me to reflect <laughs> 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 but i think that like this is this is part of this is a core and key component to ashley williams character right is he he lacks that self-awareness right yeah, you know he he comes about the the unity with his shadow by accident, uh, and not through any kind of critical introspection. Yes, yeah, yeah, which is what makes him ultimately a kind of comic character, right? And you know, as I as not... I believe you put it in our previous attempt at this recording, a himbo. Yeah. <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> essentially, yes. <laughs> uh, Ash is a himbo who needs to be awakened to class consciousness. Yeah, I, I think I think that's completely correct. Um, but to but to end on a more positive note, I think there's there's a kind of there's a freedom in this banality, right? Because he he becomes this great hero, uh, and indeed this creature of myth, not not through inaccessible means. You know, he's not physically skilled. He's not a genius. He's not a master of the arcane. He's just a guy, and not even a particularly inspiring one at that. And I think that that if if there is hope to to the kind of ending of his story i think it's the the hope that like we all work dead-end jobs we're all you know in our own ways not particularly inspiring sometimes but like even even like ash who's like comically not inspiring <laughs> even even a character like that can still exceed those boundaries those boundaries that have been written into and onto them like they can even push past that and I think that that's part of what makes this movie so compelling. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs> Ha 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 